Hello, Tent Talk listeners. This is Chris Marchand, and I wanted to make you aware of the release of Gentle Spacemakers, music from the Tent Talks podcast, and also to remind you of our Patreon page. Over the past couple of years, I've recorded a number of songs to go along with our episodes, and I finally collected them all to release as a soundtrack for the podcast. Each one of the tracks was inspired by a phrase or idea from one of our episodes. You can listen to the album on all the streaming platforms or head to chrismarchand.bandcamp.com to download the album and liner notes. Or we wanted to make you aware that we're giving away the album to all of our Patreon supporters. Do you like what we do? Well, now is a great time to become a fellow traveler as a Patreon supporter, where not only can you listen to the new album, but you'll also be able to enjoy every episode of Stephen's Mark and Book of Acts Bible Studies, as well as other bonus episodes. Head over to patreon.com slash tenttheology if you're interested, and we hope you enjoy today's episode. Welcome, fellow traveller, to the Tent Talks podcast, where we fight bad ideas with good ideas. Join Dr. Stephen Backhouse and friends as we pursue the renewing of our theological, social, and political imagination. From time to time, churches and other groups hire me as a tent theologian to act as a sort of consultant, helping them think Christianly about whatever it is they're going through. St. Luke's Church in London hired me a few months ago to go through the Sermon on the Mount with them, and I recorded a series of conversations with the Vicar John and with other guests who came and joined our conversation from time to time. They were kind enough to allow these recordings to be released on the podcast. I hope you enjoy hearing them as much as we enjoyed making them. for another episode. Stephen, it's good to see you. Nice to see you again, bright and early this time. Today we are looking at a very famous passage, an eye for an eye, and loving your enemies. Uh, and uh, it's a passage that we hear quite a lot, isn't it, Stephen? I know, right? I mean, <clears throat> this is probably like the passage that people who don't know anything about Jesus know this verse, and they know that he said this. And it's also the verse that Christians are sometimes like, often actively the most resistant to like I it's the thing that everyone knows about Jesus and it's the thing that Christians least like about Jesus so with that in mind let's take a look at the passage it's we're looking at Matthew chapter 5 middle of the sermon on the mount middle of his case studies as it were yeah on how to live out the fulfillment of the law as he talks about he is the fulfillment of the law rather than someone that's come to abolish the law and it's uh, one more of these case studies where it says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And here we are, verse 38. Stephen, do you want to read it for us today? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Whereas I tell you not to oppose the wicked man by force. Rather, whosoever strikes you upon the right cheek, turn to him the other as well. And to him who wishes to bring a judgment against you so he may take away your tunic, give him your cloak as well. And whoever presses you into service for one mile, go with him for two. Give to the one who begs from you and do not turn away from one who wishes to borrow from you. You've heard that it has been said, you shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your enemy. Whereas I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. In this way, you may become sons of your father in the heaven. 
For he makes his sun to rise on the wicked and the good, and sends rain upon the just and the unjust. For if you love only those who love you, what recompense do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing that is extraordinary? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. There is so much in this. Even that last verse. Oh, I know, right? Even that last verse has caused a great debate over the centuries. Where should we begin? Well, uh, let's... Let's let's remember what what the last passage was about, which was the let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't take oaths. And uh, and remember that this is all in part of a, the whole package here is about basically carrying yourself in public. If we were if you remember from the last week that we talked, the oaths that you're not supposed to take, they're not they're not like personal oaths between you and me. Like it's not like I say to you, I saw something. I swear it was true. I swear I'm telling the truth in a personal relationship. These are the oaths that you would take in a public setting to demonstrate your, um, your allegiance or your affiliation. It's, it's, it's the kind of stuff like the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag or like when Brits, when you had to swear an oath to the queen to become a vicar in the Church of England, right? Those are the kind of oaths that Jesus is talking about. It's these sort of public ones that show your adherence to the social norms. And Jesus says, don't do that. Don't be don't bind yourself to those things. And then the very next thing is we're now going to start to talk about conflict resolution and enemies and friends. So notice that it's all actually about identification of of your group and the other. Right. It's it's about this kind of tribal thinking or group think. It's about who is your friend, who is your enemy, who's an insider, who's an outsider. How do you deal with the enemy when the enemy infringes on your rights? What do you do with your rights when your rights have been infringed? Do you clutch tightly to what is rightfully yours or do you do you do something different with it? Right. So uh, often a lot of people I will say this, like if you are an evangelical Christian, you you have been trained. Your mind has been trained to think of this stuff as personal and individualistic. And you will have heard multiple sermons or people who who have just assumed that Jesus is talking about your private life here and, he, and that this kind of stuff is not for public life. There's a different rule for people in public positions of authority. And there's just, this is just for your private life. And this is a whole idea that has come to us through for various reasons through history. Essentially it's come to us from Christians who have found themselves in places of power and they've realized they can't run a country according to the Sermon on the Mount. And so the Sermon on the Mount goes by the wayside and it becomes individualized and privatized. I mean, that's that's the nature of, of kind of our, our culture anyway has become. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's we're products of our culture, right? So the kind of enlightenment brought around a much more greater sense of the I rather than the we kind of. Yeah. And but the Christians were at the drive. It, don't blame the enlightenment. I mean, the Christians were in the driving <laughs> seat, right? Like all that. No, stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. absolutely not blaming um, yeah. the enlightenment as a thing. I'm not saying Christians are absolutely absolved. From it's that, not the big, bad is, secularists that have done this to us. It's we've done it ourselves. And, and Christians have, have historically, Christians have found themselves with power over nations and countries and institutions, and they haven't wanted to relinquish that power, and they've wanted to use it to dominate and control other people. And Jesus here is very specifically saying, don't use your power to publicly control other people. Don't maneuver yourselves in public in these ways. Don't seek 
to control and dominate other people in the public sphere. And this, this is why Christians ignore or privatize these passages, because it, yeah. it actually strikes right at the heart of what drives a lot of what we would call Christendom, which would be that kind of official, powerful, institutional Christianity that seeks to, that, that feels like it's in charge of civilization. Yeah. And that's the kinds of stuff here, specifically Jesus is, is warning against. So yeah. let's go into it. Let's have yeah. a look at it. And there is a personal dimension to it. I mean, like my, I've often said, my friends will, at Theos, they often point out Christianity is, it's always personal, but never private. Yeah. Yeah. So it is about your heart. It is about you as an individual, but it's not about you as a private person. There is no such yeah. thing as a private act. Every yeah. act you do influences the public life. Yeah. But I think I think we generally do that. I think about that for my preaching anyway, broadly, regardless of what the passage is. I'm looking for the individual response rather than the yeah. corporate response. You know, and I think the big challenge that we looked at through one of the big challenges through Mark's gospel in series one was actually so much of this is, a, is yes, it's personal. No, it's not private. There's a corporate application for us as, a, as, a, as the people of God. And that that often gets ignored, whether you're talking about the Sermon on the Mount or not as a preacher you know, you're kind of partly trained to kind of speak to the heart of the individual. Yeah. So there is there is that writ large. So that's kind of already the, the, the flow of your, the current, if you like, of the water is flowing that so strongly in that direction. That to yeah, push I know. Against it to say, this is our corporate responsibility. This is what it looks like for us to, yeah. be, to be a community here. And it is true. It is going to be lots of individuals whose hearts, whose inner lives have been transformed, are now acting that out in yeah. public. That's the yeah. way it worked. There isn't them some separation between these no. two. So let's look at it. So you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, verse 38. Mm -hmm. This is one of these other times when Jesus appeals to something in the law and says, you have heard, but I tell you, right? Yeah, yeah. And these verses, the eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, they show up in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. What the interesting, one of the things to point out here is that the the command for an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was... If you go and read the verses, the original uh, law, it's you shall do this thing. You shall show no mercy is one of is in the is in the law. Right. And the idea was that to, to preserve the right ordering of society, if somebody caused you an injury, you had to you were commanded to to redress the balance. It wasn't you weren't just, even it wasn't just permission. It, it was like you shall do this show no mercy if somebody kills your son then you get their son or if somebody takes your eye then you take their eye and the idea was to to preserve this sort of um, social balance to the world disorder and again it was a command to do it and jesus is saying don't do that <laughs> do show mercy right it's really specific here. And it's, I think people often don't really feel the force of that, what he's trying to say. Mm. So you have heard that it was said, seek tit for tat. What you put out is what you take back, right? But, I, and of course the, the, the end of that is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. Like the trajectory is towards okay. the elimination of a human to solve a human problem. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Whereas I tell you, do not oppose the evil one or do not oppose do you remember we talked about the difference between the evil one or yeah. people in thrall to the evil one yeah yeah which is how the last passage that we looked at was yeah so the word is poneros 
and it's it, it's deliberately um, I think it's deliberately ambiguous sometimes it refers to Satan and sometimes it refers to people who are acting in the way of Satan or act and if you remember we've talked about this many times Satan is the one who runs the world like yeah don't don't think about people in a dingy basement drawing you know upside down stars <laughs> and 666 on walls doing satanic rituals that's not what we're talking about here we're talking about common sense like people who are just acting the way they think the world is supposed to act jesus says that is the way of satan which makes sense if you have if you hold a proper narrative of the the arc of humanity yeah you you hold that together you know creation uh, as my friend i think pete hughes talks about this creation decreation recreation you know that you know if you hold that arc together you you can position yourself in that place quite well yeah, and Satan is the one who's sort of the agent of decreation or, yeah. or mis mis misrule. He's the yeah. he's called the Lord of Misrule in medieval theology and and popular culture, and so Satan is the one who's. So Jesus says, "Do not oppose the one who's acting in the name of Satan or in the way of Satan." And just just to go back to that again, I just think it's really helpful to think of it as you can be doing that passively this isn't an active like just living your life in this world yeah you can be living in thrall to the evil one well that's precisely what jesus talks about i mean broad is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that leads to life so when he's talking about that he's not talking about when you die a lot of people will go to hell but a few people will go to heaven he's not saying that he's saying like, look around the world right now most people are living a way of destruction yeah and which is the way of satan yeah which is so helpful because we think of this kind of oh i'm not going to participate in the things of the enemy right the things of the devil as if it's an active choice yeah but it's almost like as people born into the world of decreation and and as people kind of of the yeah. kingdom of god there's that constant tension but we live in the world of decreation and so therefore we are participants in when even as we passively engage with the world that we're in, it's not even not, not always yeah. have to be an active choice, which I think is super helpful to frame. This is fun. We're, we're really going off off piste, but this is what Paul <laughs> is talking about in Colossians two about don't don't be gripped. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And and he talks about the powers and principalities that have gripped our imaginations. And then he explicitly so he uses spiritual dark forces language, satanic language. And then he defines those principalities as inherited traditions, religious principles, common sense, human wisdom, he calls them. And he refers to them as powers and principalities. And this is precisely what he's talking about. These are like forms of life and habits of thought that you're just born into and you just assume are true without ever really giving them any thought. And Paul says, don't be gripped by these things. That those are the very things, he says, that that were exposed to open shame by the cross go read colossians 2 and that, yeah that's that what this is about is, if you can get your head around the framework of that that's a massive game changer yeah in terms of how we view ourselves and operate within within our within our world um, well the renewing of your mind it's not this magical thing that happens it's we're reading it right now like yeah these are your this is just this is just your habits. It's a bit like that kind of when you, when you, if you want to find out what's in a glass, a glass, you just bump it and whatever comes out, that's what it's filled with. Right. That's a little bit like this. It's like, what are you filled with? It's not this kind of complicated moral calculation. 
it's like when somebody attacks you, what's the first thing you do? Try, you know, be the kinds of people who are filled with the ability to stand. So this is, let's go into it, right? So it's, don't. Yeah, we, uh, we went off track, but I think it's helpful. Context. No, but it's all, it's all part of this, right? Because the world will tell you, natural common sense will tell you that when somebody hits you, you hit back. That's the natural thing to do. You, re you react with the equal and opposite force, right? And, and, and Jesus says, I don't want you to be like that. Like, essentially, train your hearts and your minds to not be like that. Rather, whoever strikes you on the right cheek, use your intention and your will and your action and stand your ground and turn the other cheek. This is not a passive, cringing worm kind of thing to do. This is a really deliberate. Do you remember earlier when we talked about your yes, your yes, and your no, yeah. no? This is a form of self-control. This is a form of uh, not being swept away by the, uh, by the sentiment of patriotism or the sentiment of allegiance to some tribe or team or institution where you just kind of do what everyone else is doing. You take command of yourself and you go, wait a second. No, I'm not going to ally myself with that group just because that's what everyone's doing. Mm. It's a little bit like that here, right? You, you, you're taking command of yourself. It's actually a, an example of one of the fruits of the spirit, which is self-control. It is the opposite of disempowerment. It's the exact opposite. You know, it's an interesting analogy that he uses, you know, strikes you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. Yeah. Is there anything particularly contextually symbolic about well they do talk about this like uh, you probably have heard this before talked about in terms of uh being strict struck with the open hand or the backhand have you heard yeah, this before yeah, that's, yeah that's so the idea like if you imagine that i'm standing in front of you and i i smack you with my open hand right so i yeah. hit your one cheek now you're allowed to hit oh no let's say i hit you with my backhand that's right it starts with the backhand so i just kind of go i just swipe you with my backhand yeah Swiping you with my backhand is what you do, a social superior will do to an inferior. It's a way of like demonstrating your superiority over them. It's a kind of a dismissive gesture. So you're not just, it's not just simply, you're not just committing violence against somebody, but it's also you're dehumanizing them in the process. You know, yeah, exactly. You're, you're asserting your place in the, in the social hierarchy over them. Like you're saying like, this is who you are this is your place in the world it's got a double meaning you know not yeah. only am i exerting power through my my physical action but through even the the use of my hand in that action yeah yeah i mean even today like you know a really rude gesture in in italy is to is to kind of do that gesture the backhanded gesture at somebody is a really dismissive you know it's worse than raising the middle thing and that imagine that kind of gesture when you're hitting somebody yeah yeah, just and so Jesus says, when you are when you receive that kind of blow, social and physical, <laughs> don't accept the status that's been given to you. Stand your ground. So so somebody who accepts the status will either slink away, or they will fight like a dog back. Like they'll they'll kind of get enraged and and basically accept the script they've been offered. You're just an animal, and so then if you tr if you act like an animal, you're either going to slink away or you're going to fight back with tooth and claw, right? But what if instead you, instead of running away or fighting back like an animal, you stood your ground, let your chest puff out, plant your feet and look the person in the eye and say, hit me again. And now all of a sudden they have to now, because they've, their backhand has, has swung out and now they've got an open hand, they have to hit you now with an open hand. They have to treat you like, a, like an equal. 
it's weirdly an empowering act. And we often point out like a really good example would be what, what Dr. King did with the, um, and I talk about this a lot, like this is just a good example, but the way Martin Luther King, when he and his civil rights protesters, you know, when they, when they practice this in front of white police officers, they, they were not cringing inferior subservient people. They received the hit from the police, but rather than act in such a way that the white America could look at them and go, oh yeah, you see, they're just animals. Like, so if, if, the, if, if Martin Luther King had fought back and scrabbled and tried to fight the police, yeah. white America would have looked at him and said, yeah, you see, that's just the language they understand. He's, okay. he's, just, he's just an animal. Even though, step away from the emotion of it, that would be a completely legitimate, or as we would Of course, think. it's completely human. It's completely natural. Yeah. It's common sense. It's, yeah. If you really want, you can find it in the Old Testament. It's commanded to do it. And instead, there's this idea of like, don't accept the script you've been handed. Change the script. And Dr. King changed the script. And he stood there and he let people hit him. And he didn't hit back. And he didn't run away. And the police were forced in that moment. Now, they, now that the script had been changed, they had to now make a decision. They, they also became humanized in some way. They were acting out the robotic script that they've been given. Dr. King changes the script. So now the white policemen now are empowered. They have to now choose, oh, what am I gonna do? This person isn't running away like I thought they would and they're not fighting back like I thought they would. I don't have a script for this. Well, now what do I do? And more often than not, because humans are evil and racism is is the biggest force in the universe <laughs> uh, or the most popular force, they hit back, right? But what happened was a lot of the public finally saw this happen. They saw it happen. They saw the policemen deciding to continue to beat somebody who wasn't trying to beat them back. And that was, a, that was one of these moments where we can point to and say, well, that's similar to what Paul is talking about with the cross, that at that moment of submission to evil without inflicting evil back, evil was exposed to open shame. And this is a kind of an example of this. It's like Mar Martin Luther King exposed evil to open shame in that moment. And he was hit. He was hurt. We're not, it's not a solution to violence, right? It doesn't end violence, but it exposes the sham and the, it exposes what's happening when violence occurs. And this is part of what's going on here with these turn the other cheek language. And it is not a subservient, cringing worm activity. And it's not even passive. This is why a lot of us who practice nonviolence don't like the word pacifism because it just has this connotation of being passive. Okay. When in fact, it's actively, it is way harder to stand your ground when somebody's hitting you in the face than it is to run away or to fight back. It's not a passive thing to do. Well, it's defiance, isn't it? You'd say that that is an act of defiance, even though it may not be how we... Well, what, what uh, people in the kind of Anabaptist or, or the, the non-violent practicing wing of Christianity, they would say this is, a, this is what it means to witness to the powers. That the New Testament is filled with language, not of, of standing, like you stand and you witness or stand firm then, Paul will tell you. And Jesus will talk about witnesses. And in the book of Revelation, the earliest followers, they don't participate in all the violence that's happening around them. They witness 
And, and there's this idea that actually standing and witnessing, being in the place where evil is happening, but not contributing to the evil yourself, that is the Christian's duty. And, and part of that would be this, what we're talking about right now. Not just kind of perpetuating the endless cycle of revenge and violence, because that doesn't actually change anything. I mean, yeah. maybe there's an obvious answer to this that I feel like is like a, you'll just knock back and that we, you know, it'll be a very clear answer. The obvious critique is therefore is that we as Christians are essentially doormats. Now I know what you're saying is, is it's more than just simply being, you know, you're going away with your tail behind your leg, you're defeated and you're also not re-engaging in violence as well. I know you're not, you know, it's a middle ground that says, yeah, your ground, but you don't participate in in the return of violence. But but when you play that out in reality, whether that's in, I mean, I'm just going to give examples that might be helpful rather than let's think of you know not thinking of war, but you know I think of domestic violence or I think of uh, a child a bully in the playground with with a child or or um, somebody that's mugged in the street or you know yeah. acts of everyday violence. We're not talking here, you know, explicitly about murder, but obviously that will end up kind of. The well, I mean, think, think of like, well, if you want to use a different analogy, okay, so you used the word doormat, but uh, the, the language that people trying to resolve or to, to deal with violence in, from the Anabaptist tradition or from the civil rights tradition, they'll talk about it a little bit more like a sponge. So they say, look, what Jesus did on the cross is he absorbed the evil without sending the evil back. He submitted to, he received it in his body, but he didn't inflict it back on other people. The attitude of like, the buck stops with me. And Dr. King talks about himself as, as that. Uh, and, and he's not, listen, like, so what he's doing when he's receiving the hits, that he's receiving the hits on behalf of lots and lots of black people who are, who are being persecuted by white America, right? He's not just receiving the hits for his own uh, persecution. He's sort yeah. of standing in the place for other people as well. And, and, there's a, and I just wonder what the world would look like if followers of Jesus started to act that way. And it isn't a kind of a, oh, poor battered woman. Oh, it's tough luck. I'm so sorry. All by yourself. You have to deal with your, with your abusive husband. Good luck with that. I think there would be more a sense that if of like we are with you, like we are going to go and stand in front. We are going to all stand in witness. We are all going to go into this house. I don't know. I, I don't want to get too sentimental in, about it, but there's a, a lack of solidarity that we've absorbed this individualism in our Christian culture that we just think that every human's problem is their own and that it's their private problem that they have to solve by themselves. And we offer our thoughts and prayers. And that's it. We don't go and stand in solidarity with them. We don't go and witness what they're doing. We don't go and be there where it's happening. We don't invite people into, like we don't offer pl places of refuge and invite people into our lives. Like the followers of Jesus have a corporate activity about them, which Christians tend not to. So especially evangelical Christians have really absorbed this idea of like self-help capitalism and, you know, that that poverty or violence is because you brought it on yourself and and they haven't really got any lively imagination that that they are offering an alternative form of life which is going to be uh actively engaged with 
with opposing other forms of life. Uh, except when evangelicals do think about this, they always just turn straight to violence. So their solution to all these problems is to just kill your enemies, which is, you know, that, that this is why they love war and dropping bombs on things and, and owning handguns to blow away your enemies and because this, and capital punishment. Like uh, traditionally you, you see this Christians who have power, they, they just on, instantly turn to killing a human being to solve a problem. Why? They don't like abortion and, that, and then that, that their, their pro-life stops at birth. And after that, it's fair game. But Kill a human to solve a problem. Without, I mean, it's the obvious question then is, um, even even if you, and I'm not saying this is, you, you'd obviously not be a proponent of this, but even if you relativize this passage around turning the other cheek, even if you say that's a certain context of blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. um, there's still, there's still surely, you know, you could, you could argue, I'm not saying you would argue this, but you could argue, for example, that uh, the theatre of war is a different context. Argue, you know, you could argue that. I'm not saying that it's a good argument. I'm just saying you could argue that. But you could still, uh, my question for you is let's, let's leave war out of it. Because, I, you know, there might be some that would argue it differently. Yeah, of but, course they would. Of course they would. But they're not, of course, Christians are on all sides of this. But they're not following the way of Jesus. Being a Christian is not the same as following the way of Jesus. Yeah. But I guess Jesus my... would not drop bombs on enemies. Jesus would not kill it. How can anyone imagine that Jesus would do that? Yeah. So and the question... all, if you're going to try and find a way around that, you have to then institute some kind of different rule for people in power. Yeah. Which is not, Jesus does not give us that option. Yeah. That is a post Jesus solution. And so what, my, a, what a lot of this is about, um, even if you were to side, you know, push that question right. for a moment. Yeah. And say, okay, let's imagine we're just talking about the violence in our own lives. Yeah. How is it then that there is a legitimate argument for owning a handgun? Well, to... that's because it's human common sense. But there's many, many good reasons. There's many good logical reasons to kill a human being to solve your problem, to defend yourself, defend your family, right? Nobody's saying there's not good arguments for that. The only problem is if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, you, you cannot avail yourself of any of those. Jesus says no. Like you range all the arguments for killing a human being on one side of the column. <laughs> you've got Old Testament. You've got common sense. You've got patriotism. You've got family feeling. You've got every reason you can imagine is on the yes, it's okay to kill a human being. And then you have Jesus who says don't do it. And so if you're a follower of Jesus, you have to ask yourself, well, which side am I, what am I doing here, right? I'm not saying there's no good arguments for it. I'm just saying you can't find Jesus at any time saying to, that it's okay. And so, so if you want to kill somebody, go ahead. You know, be a part of the, the common sense script of the world. This is the way the world works. Just don't call yourself a follower of the way of Jesus while you do it. Yeah. That's all we're saying. It's just a basic honesty here. Remember we talked about be honest Yeah. in the last episode. Just be honest with yourself and say, I have decided that the way of Jesus is not some, I'm offended by it and I cannot do it. So yeah. I am going to do the other things. And the other, the other thing to point out is that nobody's pretending that this is a, a solution to violence here. It's, it's the response that Jesus asks you to take in the face of violence. Okay. That's it's not right. a solution to it um, because in fact, you know, the world says a thing is, is right or wrong 
only if it works or not. So if it works, then it's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and then they come up with these stories about, well, you know, I, I found that here's a story about a time when a family was invaded and, and they come up with these scenarios, which are meant to make you feel like, oh, well, Jesus's actions wouldn't have, wouldn't have succeeded in that moment. And so Jesus must be wrong. Well, we're not asked to follow Jesus because it works. We follow Jesus because he said so. And, and sometimes even the, the suffering, because we've obeyed Jesus, itself brings glory to Jesus. Or it itself acts as that moment when the ways of the world are exposed to open shame. Which is why witnesses to Jesus are also called martyrs. So there is a sense that like just uh, so much of our violent resolutions to things are because we don't want to lose. We don't want to be on the losing side. And uh, Paul, in fact... Jesus and Paul and, and New Testament figures, Paul will explicitly say, why not just be wrong? Why not let yourself be wronged? Is that, is that the worst thing in the world, right? That being hurt or being killed is worse than killing and hurting others. Is not worse, I mean. Like there's something worse than being killed by somebody and that's to kill somebody. And I, I think a lot of followers of Jesus don't, they understand that. Yeah. Whereas a lot of Christianity does not. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I, and, and also you talked about reality and I'm like, well, uh, you, you talked about the real world. It is worth pointing out here that Jesus is specifically talking and we're going to get to the thing about the go the extra mile, which was, of course, a Roman soldier was allowed to force a subjected citizen to go a mile with him to carry his backpack for a mile. And it was this part of what being living under a being a subjected race, living under occupation. That was a daily lived reality. Mm -hmm. And Jesus says, when a soldier forces you to go a mile, if he forces you to go an extra mile, which the soldier's not allowed to do, Jesus says, I want you to go the extra mile instead. I want you to voluntarily carry this this soldier's load an extra mile. Now, that's not theoretical. That's not Jesus sitting in a cave stroking his beard having a theoretical argument about violence which then as soon as it comes into the real world it disappears yeah jesus is saying all these things these are real world examples these are lived public daily examples of living in an occupied it's so ironic that a lot of christians who think uh oh we we can ignore jesus when it comes to issues of national invasion when our nation is at stake we the sermon on the mount is not applicable and yet one of the examples jesus is, uses is specifically about national invasion when the foreigner who has invaded your land forces you to go an extra mile voluntarily go with him an extra mile right? <laughs> like we might not understand it we might find it offensive which we do but that is the way of jesus and and, and so to talk about realism, uh, you have to take that into account that he is talking about the real world right now. This is his response to the real world. Yeah. But the other thing would be to point out that in the real world we have of endless violence and just constant revenge and constant wars and constant dropping of bombs on each other and constant villages being burned and raided and constant escalation of revenge and violence. This is the real world as well. How's that working out for you? Yeah. How's this script working out? Yeah. You know, uh, Americans killed bin Laden. 
Good for you. How'd that work out for you? Did you end violence? World War Two is meant to be. World War One was meant to be the war that ended all wars. Yeah. How's that working out for you? Yeah. Like violence. Everybody goes, oh, nonviolence is not a solution to violence. Well, violence isn't a solution to violence either. Yeah. Yeah. All you right. Know? So that was only the first half. Yeah. Where we well, actually there it is. Yeah. When when someone forces you to go one mile, go a second one with him. Yeah. Um, and a, a lot of this thing is more. Shirts, give the other, the... Yeah, the other thing about all this is that it's not actually. Well, we're talking about violence a lot, but I think overall the, the common theme is more: do not clutch tightly to what is rightfully yours, even when it's rightfully yours, mm-hmm. because that's the common theme here. That's that's binding together. Go the extra mile. Give away your tunic. Turn the other cheek. On all of these points, you are legally and morally and commonsensically in your rights right to fight for what is yours and at every point jesus says don't do that yeah. don't scratch and kick and fight to clutch tightly to what is rightfully yours yeah i think that would be the common theme here so then we go on to this famous passage about loving your enemies yeah do we have time what, what's the time what's our timing here we have some time okay we'll keep going I mean, I, did, I wasn't expecting to talk as much as I did about it in the first half. But well, it's the most important. This is one of the most important things. Because like I said, this is the hurdle that Christians fall on. Like in the first, the first hurdle they'll fall down on is this one, right? Yeah, okay. I've been in, in churches. I've been in rooms where church, where people are getting the crowd to cheer. I was in an American. Uh, he wasn't in America. He's an American guy. Sean Foyt got the crowd at David's tent to cheer for American bombs being dropped on Iraqi villages. You know, the uh, the tears were still wet on his cheek after singing praise to King Jesus. And then he's getting people to cheer for Americans invading Iraq. And that's just I mean, that's just like completely opposite to the way of Jesus. Yeah. Right. And and I've been in lots of those kind of rooms and, and we all have stories of that kind of thing. And, and And how many British Memorial Day services that you've been in in churches have ended up celebrating war rather than yeah memorializing what happened right and that happens all the time we just always tip over into this kind of righteous triumphalism that our nation beat the enemy and that was some righteous thing that we did and and all these christians not even not even remotely pausing to to think oh maybe we've just defied the one thing about jesus that everybody knows yeah (laughs) and we haven't even tried to to do the opposite yeah so anyway uh you have heard that it has been said you shall love your neighbor and you shall hate your enemy whereas i tell you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so there's this sense that it it comes out a little bit more clearly in the the story of the good samaritan in luke 10 yeah okay which is i mean the headline we've been talking a lot here but the headline is that in deuteronomy your neighbor is defined as your fellow israelite Right. So so when the when the young man comes to Jesus in Luke 10 and says, who is my neighbor? Right. He knows the answer because the answer is told you very plainly in Deuteronomy, which is you shall love your neighbor who is your fellow Israelite. Right. Your co-nationalist, the one who shares your blood and your heritage. Yeah. And then Jesus tells a story where he defines the neighbor as the exact opposite. He, 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 he says there was a, a Levite and a priest, the people who share your 
heritage, share your blood, or the guardians of your nationality. And they pass by on the other side, and along came a Samaritan who doesn't share your blood, who doesn't share your heritage, in fact, is your enemy. And he was the good neighbor. Yeah. So Jesus is redefining neighbor there. Yeah. And here we're kind of seeing it happen similar here in the in the Sermon on the Mount. It's the similar yeah. theme that your enemy is now meant to be treated like your neighbor. Right. I, at the, the person again, this is like an explicit sort of nationalist kind of moment here that the enemy is is defined as the one who doesn't share your blood and your heritage. And Jesus says, I want you to treat that person like you would treat the neighbor. Yeah. In this way, you'll become sons of your father. Verse 45, if you remember in the Beatitudes, the, uh, the peacemakers are the children of God. Right? Blessed are the peacemakers. Yeah, okay. So we're seeing here this, this very explicit real world response to common sense tribal nationalism your name it's not just like fighting you're having with somebody down the street although that comes up i mean i think that's also true but there is a a more kind of geopolitical dimension here okay. to this, this stuff yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then G and then jesus says um because you're going to be like sons of your father i mean also child child of god is that language of ruling and reigning if you remember it has an authoritative thing Mm -hmm. So Jesus is saying, like, when you act, you get to decide who's in and who's out. You get to decide who's a member of your tribe or not. And you get to say that actually enemies are your member of your tribe now. You get to, you have that authority over, you get to redefine boundaries. Mm -hmm. You know, there's an authoritative element when you choose to love somebody. And if you do this, you're going to be like your father, for he makes it the sun to rise on the wicked and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Which the Apostle Paul quotes this when he goes into the, if you remember in the book of Acts, when he goes into the, to the temple, which is filled with idols. You know that story in Athens? Yeah. And he goes in and he, and he sees, it's just the absolute like beating heart home of idolatry. And we're told that Paul hates it. He's, his, his heart, he's incensed by idolatry. So he's not approving of it. But he goes into the heart of idolatry. And what does he do? Do you know about this? Did I tell you about this before? Remind me. So like a typical evangelical or Christian Christendom response is that you know, this is what you do when you're in the presence of evil. You have to kill the evil. You have to purge it. You have to control it. You have to push it out. Right. You have to re reclaim the space for Jesus and take the nation back again and all that stuff. Right. So here's Paul. He hates idolatry. He goes into the home of idolatry, which is this temple filled with thousands of idols. And he stands up and he says, men of Athens, I see that you are people who love worship. <laughs> he affirms them. He affirms something in them. And he says, I see that you care about your gods. Let me tell you the name of, you've got a God over there that doesn't have a name. Let me tell you the name of that God yeah. who makes it rain on the just and the unjust, right? And he quotes Jesus here. And it's, it is so the opposite of going in guns blazing and destroy your enemies. Yeah, yeah. He affirms them. He doesn't like what they're doing, but he affirms, he finds a way to affirm them. 
he finds a name for what he actually helps. He makes their idolatry better. He's like, let me help you worship your statues better. I'm going to tell you the name of one of them. Yeah. And then he brings in Jesus who make, uh, you know, it's, it is an approach to treating your enemies like neighbors in that moment. Yeah. Wow. Wow. There's so much in this. I, I fear we've run out of time. We're going to have to park it there. I, I think what I'd love to do in our next episode, Stephen, is is to uh, begin almost with that final verse that we be perfect as you're having. Yeah, fun. let's do that. That's a good idea. Let's that's begin with that because that sets the bar for us. Uh, and it's uh, quite a challenging one when uh, those of us uh, who um, read that and think, oh gosh, what does that even mean for me to yeah. do that? Stephen, thank you for a, a thoroughly thought-provoking episode. Thank you for listening. Thanks to David Backhouse for the theme tune and to Chris Marchand for editing and all the other music. This show only exists because of support from listeners like you. If you have found something we made to be good or useful, please consider becoming a patron at the Tent Talks Patreon page or leave a good review on whichever podcast platform you use to listen. This really helps. For more information, visit www.tenttheology.com.